Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hello and welcome to yet another special edition of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Today, we're going to be forensically examining the criminal justice system from court cases through to prison and aftercare in which those that are addicted to gambling commit crime to fund their addiction. That's right, Ryan. Today, we're going to be chatting with Steve Ramsey, who was sentenced to 27 months in early 2018 for defrauding the public office that he was working for to the tune of close to £200,000 to fund his gambling addiction. And then later on in today's programme, we welcome founder of Justice for Punters, Brian Chappell. It must be said that Brian isn't here as a ruse to try and get punters off the hook for crimes that they commit, but solely to give his opinion on whether or not he believes gambling operators should be held to account in criminal cases in which systematic failures are proven. Failures that then enable said crimes to happen, i.e. not obtaining proof of funds, know your customer and anti-money laundering failings and so forth. Thanks for that, Chris. And although I wasn't around for season one of the All Better Off podcast, listeners may recall this short snippet from Women's Week in which Sarah Louise Grant briefly touched upon her time in prison and lack of support on offer. Roll the clip. There was just no help in prison I found regarding gambling. If I'd had like a drug or alcohol addiction, I think more help would have been offered to me, but it just wasn't. So, you know, I noticed that other addictions seem to have like offers of counselling and groups and ways to kind of sort yourself out a little bit. But for me, I just went in and didn't really gain anything from it, which I like, you know, that sounds weird, but like considering I'd committed a crime to fund gambling you'd expect them to kind of try and help in some way but it, it just wasn't really there. Today we wish to explore this a little bit more and so without further ado I'd like to welcome our first guest Steve Ramsey. Hi Steve uh, thank you for agreeing to be part of the show and sharing your story with us all today. Off air you told me that you had always been a gambler can you tell us a little bit more about that, how it all began and what transpired later in terms of committing crime to fund your addiction. Uh, yeah, uh, hi everybody, great to meet you all uh, and thanks for the invite. I'm from uh, a place called Gosforth in Newcastle and Newcastle is a big football city so, you know, from my earliest memories um, uh, uh, around football. Um, so I attended football from a, a, an early age um, I'm from a big family, um, and I've got an older brother and younger brother. Uh, there's a year and a half between us, up and down. And uh, we were inseparable as kids. Um, my dad loved to have a bet. Um, he, he loved the, the horses. Um, and quite often he would take us along to Newcastle races and the greyhounds, uh, when the greyhounds were at Gosforth. Um, so I, I grew up, and on match day, as I got older, you, you would put a bet on at the match, and that was always just going into a bookies uh, and putting a bet on. Um, and 
it's always been a part of, you know, uh, of my life. Um, and if I, I jump ahead um, to about 10, 11 years ago, I was uh, I was a member of the Darton Dominos team, which was a, a big part of my social life at that time. So I think my gambling at this time was under control. It was I was in a syndicate at work on the lottery. Um, me and my two best mates would always pick one football team at the weekend and put a treble on. And, you know, we would have uh, trips via the, the Darton Domino's team to the races uh, and, and stuff. Um, and I would just bet normally. Uh, it was always money I had. Um, so if I lost, it wasn't such a big deal. Uh, and I think uh, what happened was um, my brother was talking about uh, a, a Facebook page where he was getting tips for horses. And he mentioned also um, about Bet365 in that they would match a deposit if you owned an account. So I, I owned an account with Bet365. I deposited 200 quid, so they give me 200 quid. Um and I started to look at this uh, Facebook page and that Facebook page linked me to another one where it was just punters giving out advice and tips and things. Um, and instead of like having a bet at the bookies now with, with the lads, now and again, I would pick out some of these tips and, and bet on them. Um, and, you know, one of the first ones was a uh, each way double. I put on which one and give me 600 quid. And I think within the first couple of months, I'd withdrawn about 2,000 quid from my initial deposit and then play it through. Um, and it, it was getting to the point where they were starting to restrict my bets a little bit. Um, and I wasn't that fussed about it. I, I just reduced my stake. Um, and things changed. Uh, you know, I remember Aston Villa, would you believe, were playing uh, West Brom. Uh, so it was a local derby um, and it was on in the club. And West Brom were on top quite a bit. Um, and one of the lads said something uh, about there's going to be a goal. There's going to be a goal soon. Um, and he mentioned something about in play. And I had a look on, on my Bet365 account and, and looked in. It was about four or five minutes to half time, um, and I just looked at the odds for a goal before half time and put a bet on. Um, and as it settled and the, the tick went, um, and I sort of looked up, and the, there was a goal. And I've never had a feeling like that um, on any of my other bets. Um, it was just something completely different. Um, and I discovered a whole new thing. Um, I would still bet on some of the horses and some of the tips, and there were some good tipsters, um, and I did it on a point system. Um, so, you know, uh, a point was a tenner. Um, so if they said four points, I would, I would stick to it and put 40 quid on a horse, um, and I, I did win quite a, a lot of money through that. You know, if you looked at the websites, we, we were up 400 points in this period of time. 
So that's 4,000 quid. Um, but instead of withdrawing these winnings, I was tend to put them onto football in play. And eventually I didn't bother with the horses. I was just in play. Um, and I think probably, I'm not unsure of the time scale, but I would say within three or four months of my first in-play bet, I was hooked completely. And the thing with in-play betting uh, and, you know, the operators, I used to get up at six o'clock to go to work and I could pick a, a game in New Zealand um, and I would be having bets before my first cup of tea. By the time I got my car to go to work, I could have had 10 bets. Um, my phone was like this is now at work. Um, so I was logged in all day um, and I was just betting all day. Um, and whilst, you know, you have some wins and some good wins, uh, eventually I was starting to lose money and it was excuse me, it was digging in my savings and they went quite quickly. So to cover the fact my savings had gone, um, I got a loan out. Um, and it, this is all hidden from my partner uh, at the time. So she was totally oblivious. And in fact, every everybody was. Not one person knew about this. Then I think things just started to spiral. Um, so I was tend to get uh, payday loans more and more, um, credit cards, and I was going up to the, the maximum limits pretty quick. Um, and it was just a never ending cycle of um, my card. Uh, I've got all these bills to pay. I've got no money left. I've got all these uh, loans to pay, credit cards to pay. Um, and I was just like at a loss um, of what to do and how to, to get out of it. Um, but I don't think ever once did I think I've got to stop gambling, um, you know, because that was a way out. If I can win big, um, I can pay the debts off. Um, and sometimes I, I did win big. Uh, you know, I hate to use figures sometimes. Um, but I won £26,000 on a bet. And that, that could have solved so much of my problems. Um, but I think I probably paid off two or three things. And the rest I just gambled pretty quick. Um, and this was gone over, a, 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 you know, a, quite a, a long period of time. And... I was in a complete mess um, and at work, um, part of my job was to recover funds due back to the, the company I worked for. And I think I was at just such a, a desperation stage and without much thought, I substituted my bank account details for works um, when someone was returning the money. Um, and that's the first time I stole from work. And it was uh, about 4,000 quid. And that was the most terrifying thing I'd ever done. Um, you know, the, the guilt you've got with that. 
And like, how, how could I have done that? How could I have done that? And I, you're just waiting to be caught. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it was just frightening. Um, but it, it stopped me gambling for a, a little bit. Um, because I think the shock of it all, uh, it, was, it was an awful time. Um, but I, I guess as time went by and, and nothing had happened um, and I hadn't been caught. Um, and also, I kept getting free bets given. Um, Steve, we haven't heard from you. Here's 500 quid in your account. And, it, and when that happens, it just starts you straight off again. And then, of course, you know, I ended up again with no money, no means to pay bills. Uh, and I, I stole again. Um, and it, it's an awful thing to say, uh, but this went on for four years. Um, and I had no idea of, of how much I'd stole. And although, you know, you, you sort of deal with accounts and finance, um, I didn't cook the books. Uh, it, it was there pretty easy to see any decent audit. Um would have would have found it, but you know it just didn't happen. Um, and I think the longer this went on, uh, the worse damage it was doing to me. Um, you know, it's hidden; nobody knows about it, so you can't turn anyone. Um, the the guilt of it all is is it's hard to explain. Um, but also, I think. You know, because of the amount of time I was gambling, um, everything in my life was suffering. The relationship with my partner um, was bad. Um, work was suffering. You know, I, I was pretty good at my jobs. Um, and I, I knew I wasn't doing the job that I should be doing. And that was causing all sorts of anxieties. The relationship with my kids was just horrendous. Um, uh, I was putting off uh, uh, seeing them. In a, my, my family as well, I used to pop back in Newcastle all the time, um, you know, mainly to go and watch the football, but I would always pop in to see family. Because um, I, I, I was down in the Midlands, I don't know if I said that. Um, so I was in the Midlands at, at this time. And I, I just couldn't see a way out of this. Um, and... Like, suicide was a, a constant thought. And it had gone from, you know, just, well, I suppose I could kill myself. That's a way out. It had gone from that to, well, perhaps if I jumped off a bridge, that wouldn't... No, I couldn't jump in, the, in front of a train because of the train driver. Uh, I'd hate to see... Uh, I'd hate a person to, to find me in the woods... Um, hanging from a tree. My thoughts were like this. Um, and I, I just thought, oh, my God, I've, I've got to do something. And I can never do that. I've got two daughters uh, who I love dearly. So I, I, I just didn't really know what to do. Um, and I tell you, um, I, I went at a funeral of a good friend um, and sitting in the wake, uh, having a drink, um, and 
his brother, who I'd never met, spoke uh, about Dave, who had died. Um, and we all knew Dave was a fantastic bloke, but his brother told us stuff that none of us knew. And it just made us think, wow, wow he kept this quiet and he was such a great bloke. Um, and I was thinking, you know, people would say things like that about me. He's, he's a great person. He, he'd do anything for you. Um, you know, his life and soul at the party. Whereas I was, a, I was stealing money from work. Um, and I got, I got on my phone and I sent some emails uh, to, to work and criminate myself. And I, I took a couple of days off work um, and it was to go to Newcastle to tell my mum first. Uh, and then, uh, strangely enough, she'd gone over to Ireland and I, because I hadn't been in touch for a while. I didn't know. Um, so I just came back down in an eaten, went to work, um, straight into the office. Um, and my boss and her boss were sitting there. Um, and, and it's when I said, look, I've got a gambling problem. I'm sorry. Um, it's still really emotional talking about this. Um, and that was like the first time I'd said those words um, to anybody. Um, and they just sort of said, look, we'll sort this out. Leave it with us. Obviously, you're suspended. Get yourself away home. Um, but I literally left work and went straight to the police station and just handed myself uh, in. Wow, Steve. Your, um, your journey, your story, it's just incredible. I find it absolutely fascinating. And... I can really relate to it as well. I can really relate to it. Now, you know, I didn't um, steal from my company or anything like that. But what I mean is, I can, I feel like I can understand those feelings that you're talking about. But also, what is incredible is how you started off as somebody who went to the races, you know, did your football bets. You and two friends just picked a team each. Really normal stuff. And then how, you know, you then went on the Facebook page and there was the tips. But even then, that was, you know, that was kind of sensible until you hit that in-play betting. Uh, and then as soon as you did that, you were hooked. And then it just shows the progression. You were then sitting at work all day gambling. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I think that's what's really important to recognise. When people talk about how many people suffer from gambling harm in this country, actually, we have to worry about the people who will or may suffer gambling harm going forward because anyone looking at you back then would have just thought this is a guy who just gambles normally like everybody else in this society which has normalized gambling so much so i found that absolutely fascinating steve thanks a lot and i just want to move on to a question now um in your particular case the judge pointed out the fact that you had no previous brushes with the law and said that you're an intelligent man which is evident as we chat to you today. Um, over the past season and a half on the podcast, we've had many similar guests and it really just goes to show it doesn't matter how clever or intellectual you are, this illness is indiscriminate. So going back to your case, Steve, um, you, were you were sentenced to 27 months in early 2018. What happened from here on in and later at your proceeds of crime here in post-conviction? Right. Um, I think... From from the, the the minute I went to the police station, that was July 17, and my court case was February 2018. Um, so 
from the time that I, I sort of, you know, admitted what had happened, I went down to work a number of times to help uh, and calculate everything. I think one of the major reasons I went to the police myself was because I think if work were just left to try and sort out the mess, it would have took forever. Um, they would have had to look at every single transaction I'd done in the time that I was there. So that was a pretty short time compared to what I know some people have to wait. Um, but what it did allow was made us sort of look at uh, getting help for the addiction firstly, which I did through GA, through counselling, um, and I can't state enough how much GA meant to me and still does. Uh, but I think what it, it, it enabled me to understand the addiction. It made me look at perhaps a lot of the reasons why I did what I did, um, what I was getting away from, stuff I wasn't dealing with. Um, but also, I knew I was going to go to jail. Um, I knew that. So it, it gave me time to prepare for that. Um, now, when I say that, I don't mean I was I was sort of looking at uh, uh, like what's going to happen in prison. It was more just um, it's coming. I need to be pre prepared for it. Um, so you know, when I, I was relieved in a way, the court case was coming. Um, and, you know, I, I went on the day, no, I was going to jail. I think all, uh, most of my family and friends didn't think I would. Um, but I knew, so I was prepared for it. Um, and I needed to be punished. You know, this was all my fault. I needed to be punished for it. Um, and once everything had been heard... Um, and the prosecution said their stuff, and the defence said their stuff. Um, the judge summed up and he said, look, you could have the maximum sentence for, th for this. Um, I think it might have been seven years. Um, but he started reeling off reasons why he was reducing it. I've been told that if he got 24 months, it would be a suspended sentence. Um, and he got it down to 27 months. And I... My brain is saying, that's it, you've got to stop. Do not reduce it any further. Um, because I felt like I had to go <laughs> to jail. Um, and he did stop there. Uh, so, you know, 27 months was the least I could have got, um, which I was grateful for. So, you know, from literally the second he, he gives his sentence, that's it. You just take it straight away. See, you can't say goodbye to anybody. Um, it was just straight out of the door. Um, and that's when I sort of it was introduced to what this was going to be like. And from that moment, it was just awful. Everything about it. Um, I always thought I was going to go to Durham prison. I don't know if I mentioned I actually moved back to Newcastle when this all happened. Um, my relationship with Claire was just finished. Um, so I expected to go to Durham prison, but Durham was full at the time, so I ended up going to Leeds. Um, 
which is not a pleasant place. It's a Victorian old prison. And it was just horrendous, everything about that. Um, I should have been there for um, six weeks or so, um, but I ended up being there for 12 weeks because it wasn't easy to get from uh, this prison to where I should have gone up, up north. And during that time, um, my gambling addiction wasn't mentioned once. Nothing was ever talked about it um, because that stage doesn't happen until you get assigned to the prison. Um, so eventually I ended up at Kirk Leventon, an urban prison in Teesside. And it's a progressive prison. So you have to work in at certain stages, you'll move on to different things. Um, and you have your own security type probation guy and they look at your offence, what may make you re-offend. Um, so it was, it was gambling. Um, you know, that's you. I, I can safe, safely say that if I didn't gamble, I would never have a, a criminal conviction. Um, so the only thing that would ever get me back is if I return to gambling. Um, so to me, that's pretty straightforward. You just help this person stop gambling. But there was nothing really in, in the prison. Um, you know, they have drug and, drug and alcohol teams, but nothing for gambling. Um, and I had to be there for about four months before I could even think about getting out on community service stuff. Um, so nothing happened in four months while I was, I was there. Um, uh, until you have to do a bit of education. I had to do something for English. And I just wrote, wrote a piece about why they should include gambling within the, the same uh, format as they do drug and alcohol. Um, and the English teacher uh, took that and took a copy of it without my knowledge um, and gave it to the DAR team. Um, so the DAR team came to see me and, and it ended up whereby we organised a smart recovery meeting. So it wasn't related to a specific addiction. It was just related to addiction. Um, and then in the meantime, while this is going on, um, and it was getting to the point where I could go in and out of the prison and do community service and things. That's when I started to say, you've got to get me to GA. Um, there's a meeting just up the road in Middlesbrough uh, every Monday. Um, if you're serious about wanting me not to re-offend, um, then you've got to let me go. And I banged on about it for quite a while uh, until they agreed. So I was able to go out. Um, and then, of course, once that happened, uh, there was others from the prison started to go because um, they had a gambling problem. Um, so I think there's a, a huge... Um, area missing within that prison. And, you know, I've since heard that it's the same in many prisons um, and it's something that perhaps needs to be addressed. Um, now, also, the proceeds of crime, but I think when, because I work with the police uh, to, to get it all sorted out, um, the CPS who um, deal with POCA um, had 
forensically looked at my bank accounts and things. They'd looked at into my bank accounts um, because also they have to prove, you know, money laundering. Like, was I stealing it to give to people to buy cars, to buy houses? Um, um, and they looked at it and it showed that 78% of every penny um, that went through my account went to gambling companies. And I think what you have to realise is, like, you know, there was probably three quarters of a million quid staked um, in this period. Um, and that was just my bank. That's not including credit cards. Um, so 78% of that amount went straight into the operator's bank accounts. Um, what it meant was that... Um, they agreed that I couldn't pay back, so I just had to sign for a pound uh, and pay a pound. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't particularly happy with that because I nicked it and I want to pay it back. Um, so uh, my pension went. Um, I offered up another pension, so I repaid uh, 60,000 quid. The pocket pay paperwork came back with these changes and said, right, so you paid back this. The, the, the difference is this. You haven't got it. A pound. Um, so I, I signed that. Um, and I always had it in my mind that it didn't matter what that bit of payment is. I'm going to pay this back. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. Um, and then what's due to happen is you then have to appear in court just to agree. And in these, for something like this, you could do it via a video link. Um, and I had to go to a different prison to do that. But it, it was cancelled, and then my solicitor got in touch to say this uh, been a change to, to your pocket. Um, and my first thought is, wow, you know, they're going to insist that I pay this back. Um, but then the paperwork came through, and it said that Skybet um, had paid £76,000 back. Um, and there was no explanation. Uh, it just said Skybet, 76,000 quid. Um, so I wrote to Skybet from prison to say, basically, what the hell have you done? Why are you paying that back? It's, I stole it. Um, and they wrote back just to say quite bluntly um, that... Um, as part of their investigations, um, they, they realised that I'd um, stolen money um, and that they had perhaps not acted appropriately. And then with working with the Gambling Commission, we've repaid your net loss to Warwickshire County Council. Um, and... I, I just didn't really understand it. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that um, perhaps this wasn't all my own fault. Um, so I wrote to the Gambling Commission to say, what, what's this all about? Um, and the responses weren't great. And um, it left me a bit confused. And, and it was at this time that I started to sort of look at, I need to understand this whole business. Um, uh, and I'm still doing that to the day. Hiya, Steve. Um, 
just listening to your story there, you know, I think the one thing that stuck with me the most is when you've said it was all my fault. I've done a bad thing and I need to go to jail. And you, I'm a wife of a compulsive gambler and or I was a compulsive gambler, I should say. He's a recovering gambling addict. Um, but the one thing I think I've learned over the last few weeks is it's it's not that you're a bad person, it's that you're a good person, but you're getting manipulated into doing bad things because you become desperate to get this money back, don't you? And I think one of the things that you touched on, which is quite important, is that there's there's alcoholism and drug addictions in prison. However, there's no real support by the sounds of it for gambling addiction. And I think what you said touched on before as well is that it's so invisible. Nobody knew about it. And every guest I've spoke to so far said, my wife didn't know, my partner didn't know, my family didn't know. And I think the fact that it's such a hidden addiction, it's so important that we're getting it out there isn't it that you know if people are going to prison solely because they have committed a crime because of gambling that they should there should be some rehabilitation in prisons whether it's an intense course in prison education what do you think the the aftercare is like or what was your experience of the aftercare side of things like I, i sort of touched on it's pretty non-existent i don't know what the answer is to be honest, um, I think Skybet were fined 1.1 million quid because of the actions with my account, and I think it was six others. That money should perhaps be used better than it is currently. Um, I know there is uh, a bit more happening. Gamcare are looking at working in prisons, um, and there is other charities out there that do. Um, but I think it needs to be a joined-up you know, it's something that needs to be done um, throughout the country and not bits and pieces here and there. I think, you know, you, you can often tell a, a, an alcoholic by just, you know, some of the characteristics and drug addict addiction. You know, you can sometimes spot a drug addict pretty easily. Um with gambling, like nobody knows because, um, you know, there's no outward symptoms. And I think mentally it might be worse than the other two. I, I don't know that. I, I, no, I don't know that because I haven't been one of the others. Um, but mentally it's just a, a horrendous addiction. And treatment is needed to, to cure, not cure, but to help with the effects it has on you mentally. And it's just lacking completely. I found it to, you know, it wasn't really until I got back out where you can start to, to deal with things again properly. Um, so, you know, I was released and obviously you've got to see probation. Um, and probation, really, all I had asked was, are you still going to GA? And, and that was about it. Um, and they didn't really bother with me. Um, you know, I, I just attended the meetings. How are you? I'm fine. Any problems? None. See you next week. Then it was seen in a fortnight. Then see you next month. So <laughs> it was a pretty pointless 
exercise, I, I felt, because there was no outcomes. There was no, you know, there, there, Steve, you need to be doing this, or Steve, you need to be doing that. Um, because they just didn't know, I just found what was on offer was pretty meaningless. Um, I'm grateful that I was allowed to go to GA, um, but, you know, that wasn't the the um, criminal justice system helping me in treatment. It was allowing me to go to a group of addicted people and sit and chat with them. Um, now, don't get me wrong, that works for me, um, but GA is not for everyone. So... How do you deal with that? I don't know. I've been asked um, the the Howard League for penal reform um, have been given um, grants to look at certain things, and I've been asked to go and uh, well not go but to sit with the chairman of that to discuss crime and gambling. So you know perhaps that might lead to changes, um, but obviously. People like us speaking up about it. It's the only way to perhaps get change. Tomorrow, meet with the GA and some of the commissioners and people from DCMS, and it's all about uh, crime and gambling. Um, so, you know, they're going to be asking uh, me questions about what I think and what, you know, what the three things that need to be done. Um, so... I will tell them what I think and hopefully they, they're going to listen and perhaps act. And I don't particularly ever feel comfortable talking about stuff, this stuff. There's far more articulate people than, than me out there. Um, but I will never say no because the thought of perhaps my brother who loves, loves to have a bet, the same thing happening to him or others or... I see how many young people are gambling now. Um, you know, it's just getting worse. And this type of thing is going to happen again and again and again. And people are going to end up in jail, which it's... I understand the need for deterrence and you've got to be punished and, you know, you can't just go around nicking money because um, you've got problems. But also, I... I understand the need for punishment and I needed to be punishment. That's what my, sorry, I, I needed to be punished. That's what my brain tells me. But did that punishment do any good to anybody other than cost a lot of money? Um, I, I don't know what the answer is, but, you know, just by giving my side of my story, it might help people far more intelligent and in better positions uh, than, than I am to actually figure something out. Steve, I think you're absolutely right um, about everyone needing to speak up. And I think every voice is important. And just to listen to you today, I'm really grateful for you to come on and talk about your experience. Um, you know, it's very emotional for a lot of us here. I think everyone at the pods. Um, so we're grateful. I'm sure our listeners will agree that this has been quite impactful for them. Um, I, I, like I like I just said, I really feel for what you've been sharing with us today. 
Um, I get it because my dad made some bad decisions and um, ended up on the wrong side of the law too. And although I don't know the full details, um, I imagine that there was a gambling addiction before and after. And I think um, it only got worse due to prison because of the restrictions on employment. Unfortunately, my dad's sort of experience with the law happened quite at a young age. And so it really limited what he could do in terms of his career. Um, And I, I think what you've talked about in your story is about the impact in your mental state and what decisions and what you were thinking. I think that's really come across. Um, I think that's really come across in what you've said today. Um, I think it's obvious um, the way you were thinking um, changed um, when you talked about when you made that um, decision, that impulse to sort of transfer money into your account, and also during the sentencing, you you feel you you've said quite a few times that you felt like you deserved it or that this needed to happen. Um, and I think for me that that sounds like you were really struggling to make the right sort of thought processes that you would have ordinarily have done. And I think it's worth saying here that addiction can be horribly powerful. It, it can be, I mean, firstly, it's horrible. It can take seize and control of your mind in a way that you can make actions and decisions that you would never have dreamt of. And actually you, you will regret for a long period. Um, and I think that's what I've heard from, from you today. Um, I think, um, so I guess my question is about um, about gambling in the criminal justice system and how it's perceived. So I recall a study that has happened in Canada that stated that the prevalence rates of problem gambling in the adult uh, correctional population are five to ten times higher than those found in the general population. Um, and so that that just you know it shows that there's a big problem with gambling in in criminal justice, and we know that. Um, I guess my question is about what you might believe would be best as best practice and uh, what you might be alluding to uh, before when you were just talking about what you're going to be sharing to all these different bodies that want to hear your opinions. What what are the, some of the things that you want to discuss and bring up and the things that you'd want to change so that it's different for other people? What would have happened if at my um, sentencing, my barrister was able to say, Skybet have actually repaid 76000 because they were at fault in handling Steve and the Gammon Commission have fined them a million quid. If he'd got down to 27 months, you know, based on just everything he knew, then that, I'm sure, would have tipped it to a suspended sentence. And perhaps that would have saved me the utter heartache of, of prison. And when I say that, I don't mean just for me, but from my family and friends um, who didn't know what was happening every day I was in prison. Um, so I, I do believe that something needs to be done um, in cases like this where the, it's looked at and the CPS have spotted that this is just purely gambling addiction. It wasn't to make my life better. It wasn't to buy things, to improve my lifestyle. It was everything opposite to that. It didn't improve anything in my life. And I think that needs to be understood so that the the operators can be fully held accountable for for what they've done. So Skybet repaid the, the money. Um but the Gambling Commission didn't look at any of my other accounts. So they know that that's the amount that I stole. That's the amount that's paid back. And there's still this money 
that other operators have received and it's proceeds of crime. But they didn't act on it. So the the whole thing needs to be looked at. And it, it always goes back to the same thing as well with me, is that I actually stole this money. There's lots of people with addictions do not resort to crime. So there's always the guilt that, you know, I'm always going to be on the, the, the back leg, I suppose, to say it wrong. Yeah, perhaps they did wrong, but I, I, I did it. You know, what can we do about it? It's, it's a question that I, I really find difficult to answer. Um, I think it's unfair that I bore the brunt of it when it's obvious that there was other people at fault. Um, I took responsibility, didn't I? There's that responsible gambling message. Um, you know, perhaps the industry needs to actually look at that and say, perhaps we need to take a bit more responsibility because any intervention from there would have stopped me in my tracks. And by that, I mean, if they had said, can you just prove that you can afford to deposit £10,000? And I, I just wouldn't have been able to do it. And if that was then um, community, communicated across the operators, this guy can't afford his gambling. It would have stopped me in my tracks. And it might, you know, it's, it's easy to talk in hindsight, but it, it could have stopped me in my tracks to think, well, I need to to do something about this. Totally agree with what you were saying there, Steve. Um, you know, we're obviously really pushing for, you know, joint accountability. Uh, plenty of us obviously take responsibility for our own actions. And, you know, it seems that quite often the uh, the industry can be rather dismissive or, or, you know, just sort of kind of shy away from that responsibility. Um, I think that this whole discussion has provoked an interesting argument that, uh, um, you know, possibly looking at alternative measures as opposed to locking people up with little to no support, which you've touched upon for their gambling addiction. Um, I'm sure I remember hearing somewhere that suggested that, uh, don't quote me on this, please, uh, gambling addiction is the fastest growing reason for people going to prison in in the UK. Um, however, um, genuinely believe that this is um, a severely misunderstood addiction across the whole of society, uh, not just on the inside. Uh, for us and, and our work that we're currently doing through Torgen, we're, we're currently looking to, to get policy regarding gambling addiction into places of work alongside drug and alcohol policy. So I think that the prison system, the penal system should be also looking at that. And so fingers crossed we do get somewhere with, with that. Now, I know that you've got high praise for the Northern Gambling Clinic in Sunderland, who have been a huge support to you. Uh, just to wrap things up, Steve, I'm sure our listeners would live to, love to hear a, a bit more about how you are now and, um, yeah, just how you're getting on in general. I mean, currently, um, I'm great. You know, everything in my life is is improved since the day I stopped gambling. I'm in my own place. I've got a job. I, I've met a young lady who um, our relationship is being based on pure honesty and when you spent a long time lying through your teeth to cover everything you're doing, um, it's it's fantastic. I didn't think I would ever go into a relationship again. I think I had a choice of um, 
just forgetting all about my addiction, just going to GA, keeping quiet um, and getting on with my life. Um, but I think the more I've looked into it, um, the more I've realised that change is needed and it's through people like me and yourselves um, who are going to drive that change. Um, so I think I mentioned I'm not comfortable. A lot of the times I do stuff. Um, I've been on the telly a few times and it's it's horrendous. But I'm going to speak out. Paul Buck from Epic gave me some advice just after I got out of prison. And he said, Steve, you need to understand what you want to do first and then go out and do it. So what I wanted was a great understanding of the whole um, gambling uh, industry and then the education and treatment and help where I can. I do think it should be a public health-led treatment and education should be perhaps not led by the industry as much as it is. Um, so there's a lot a, a lot of work to do. Um, I'm thankful that I've met some great people. You know, what you lot have done in such a short time is fantastic. And it's great that our voices are becoming more, more not heard, but accepted. Um, and people are willing now to come to us to help them to set things up. You mentioned the, the gambling clinics. Um, you know, hopefully we're going to be involved in, in how they're going to progress. Working with the Gambling Commission, you know, they failed me, I believe. Um, and I think I'm the type of person that rather than shout about how bad they are, which is what can happen, sit and work with them so you can fix it. And if all of this leads to, you know, changes for the better, uh, I, I've been speaking to Gam Care previously about work, working in prisons. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that are a possibility. Um, and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing whilst working full time. It, it's hard. Um, there's not enough hours in the day, but I'm just going to keep doing it because... I do not want what happened to me to happen to other people because it's preventable. 100% Steve, thanks for that. And I'm glad that you've uh, got a lady friend on the go and you're getting on uh, getting on really well. Uh, that's always good to hear. And yeah, great um, great stuff, uh, great advice from Paul as well. Uh, we've, we've also spoke to Paul before and obviously he's been in a very similar situation to, to yourself. So yeah, definitely some good advice there. Um, great to have you on the show today, Steve. For our listeners, uh, please stick around because after the break, we'll be chatting to Brian Chappell from Justice for Punters to get his perspective on dual accountability and whether this is something the criminal justice system need to look into more. See you in a mo. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban. Gamban is software you can install on all of your devices to stop yourself from online gambling. Several of the team behind Gamban have experienced their own problems with gambling, which led to the creation of the product. It's now been shown to be the most effective blocking software for blocking online gambling and a useful tool to help with recovery. Visit Gamban.com for a seven-day free trial. 
Now, though, it's time to get back into the pod. Hello, and welcome back to part two of our criminal justice episode of the All Bets Are Off podcast. We've been joined by founder of Justice for Punters, Brian Chappell, Acker Jimmy Justice. Hello, Brian. Good to have you on the show today. Yeah, good to be here, and thanks for inviting me. That really, really is great to have you on the show, Brian. Uh, whilst we all know what you're about, uh, there may be some listeners there who aren't sure who you are and what you do. So in your own words, uh, would you care to explain? Yeah, no problem. Um, we set Justice for Punters up about four and a half years ago now, but about 18 months before that, a group of us had been working with Competition Markets Authority and the Gambling Commission to try and get fair terms and conditions within the gambling industry. And we initially started really from from an angle of, of that, which was that people couldn't get the bets on, didn't know why they couldn't get the bets on. People were being spied on online using various forms of, um, um, we like to call it software. The companies like to call it cookies, but they're not cookies. Um, and then I did a, I did a program on BBC Radio 4 about a guy who, who we got 32 grand back for, along with the BBC. Um, and it came out, even though he was owed that money, it, it really came out that um, he perhaps had had a gambling disorder previously. And so we started getting a lot of um, uh, people getting in touch with us. Obviously, when you've been on the BBC, that happens. Now, my professional background, I'm, I'm retired, but... Uh, my professional background is health and health from the neck up as such. I'd never worked in addiction. Um, my particular interests were epilepsy, MS and Parkinson's and things like that. But predictably, it was me that got those cases. And really, the rest is history. And um, we're the only people in the world, really, not just the UK, that are volunteering to help people who've been exploited um, uh, try to achieve some sort of recompense for that exploitation. Brilliant. Thanks for that, uh, Brian. Earlier in the programme, we spoke to Steve Ramsey, who was sentenced to 27 months imprisonment for funnelling public funds to his bank account to feed his gambling addiction. And over the years, we've seen many similar cases. One that uh, immediately springs to mind, I think it was from July this year, in which um, Leanne Goldthorpe uh, stole close to £350,000 in just 10 months from the logistics company that she worked for in North East Lincolnshire. Now, uh, whether this was lost through one one operator, obviously, we're not sure. Uh, needless to say, we're not privy to the case notes or anything. But in the past, we've seen and spoken to individuals in which vast amounts of money are deposited via a single operator without any checks whatsoever. Now, in your line of work, how often do you see such things? If you're asking me the question about how many people lose a lot to one app operator rather than 100,000 to six different operators, which is, I think, what, you, what you're getting at, what we tend, it's very rare to get a case where somebody has only lost money to one operator, but it does happen. Um, more likely is that people will have lost maybe a significant amount to three and four different operators or perhaps even more but there will be one or two or just one where the vast majority of that money has gone Um, so I think it is fair to say that there there usually is and, and again people some people on Twitter sometimes get the impression that we take all cases we do not, and I'd like to make that clear. And we have a very 
a very distinct process that we follow, which is all to do with evidence. So, you know, we don't have time, but we could produce figures which are showing losses to one company. Of, I mean, the biggest case we've got at present is well over a million just to one company. But the vast majority that we deal with would be between about 5,000 to 100,000. Thanks for that, um, Brian. Um, I think that it's evident to see that there are systemic failures on the operator side, which results in a pool of dirty money entering industry coffers. In your opinion, would you say that these some that some perhaps ignore these red flags purposefully? That is, I'm not one for sitting on the fence, <laughs> but I'm going. I'm going to slightly there. In that, I would. I would. I. I think there are. We have conclusive evidence that mistakes continue to be made. How do you prove whether that was done purpose, purposely as opposed to um, uh, it was just part of sort of VIP company policy? I mean, we have, we have masses of, of evidence of VIP members of staff encouraging people who are clearly vulnerable at that point to spend more money. So if we define that as being on purpose, the answer to your question is yes. But we're not about really blaming individuals or blaming individual companies. We're about saying that this industry has failed to self-regulate because that's what it's been asked to do. Since 2000, okay, before 2005, it was asked, asked to self regulate but since then when it was allowed to in effect to keep things really simple promote its business okay still that 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 uh, self-regulation continues and it continues today everything is about the carrot okay and when you look at the criminal justice system it is it's not the carrot that the that the vulnerable person gets it's the stick okay now you would you would you would struggle to find somewhere else in uk society where it is the vulnerable party that gets the stick okay and the non-vulnerable party that gets the carrot and that for me is something which needs looking at extremely closely because if you keep giving the carrot, history tells us that we're going to get cases that we perhaps wouldn't have had, yeah? In that what you've got at present is you haven't got an industry standard. You know, you've got the Betting Gaming Council at present shouting about raising standards and etc. Well, I'm sorry, it's very difficult to do that. This is not a criticism of them. It's very difficult to do that if an industry doesn't have a standard. And what we have at the present moment in time is individual company standards of which nobody knows what they are. And the Gambling Commission, usually around about every 12 months, rubber stamps some document that is really only about the perceived risk by the owner or owners of each company. So if I'm CEO at, um, I'll make this up now, let's say Rabbit Bet or something, yeah, 
and I want to be the best possible. So I, I do everything that Brian Chappell asks, asks me to do. I'll end up with no customers. Okay, because every every time I intervene, and by intervene, I mean intervene properly, all these how are you emails and things are absolutely worthless. Okay, if you're at the height of an addiction, and I've learned this through talking to people that have been through everything, it's an absolute waste of time sending somebody an email that says, are you comfortable with, with your present gambling? Are you comfortable with your losses? What a ridiculous thing to do. So I do something properly as CEO of RabbitBet, right? And I actually say, look, you know, we need to check your source of wealth to sustain those losses because we don't want to exploit you. We want to ensure that you are one of these few people who perhaps is a millionaire who can afford to lose five grand a month um, gambling. And if if that person thinks, ooh, bit of a nosy fella this, he's going to go and bet with somebody else, isn't he? Or, or she's going to go and bet with somebody else. So what you have really at the present moment in time, even though I do believe there are people in the industry who are trying to do much better, we actually have a failed system. And that system needs needs changing. And I apologise for a long answer to a to a to a simple uh, a simple question. So, do people do it on purpose? Um, as individuals, I would really want to say yes. I have met somebody who is who has done that on purpose. But there is no question that some company companies have very low standards and they train their staff to look more at increasing profit than they do at whether somebody um, perhaps has um, a developing or already a sort of established gambling disorder. Hi, Brian. It's Kish here. I'm really glad that you're on the show and um, really appreciate that insight about the bottom line of what a gambling company might be actually like and what, what they're actually driven by. Um I think some people might not know this, and Brian, you might you might have forgotten yourself because based on how many cases that you probably go through. But I sent I sent you a message um, a while back using the online pseudonym Gambling Crisis, which again makes it a bit difficult makes it more a bit more difficult to recognize who I am. But um, my question was about basically my dad's gambling, which was about seven it was about about seven years ago that um, that it stopped. And um, my question was about evidence, and so my question around that is related to that. Um, to you today is about um, how difficult is it for someone to you know start a case or trial about evidence when you know at the end of the day I have literally nothing very little left about my dad's gambling record and he never had anything and whatever he did have in sort of the paper form of bank statements that was shredded many many times every time you know um, it, why isn't there such a thing like a, a sort of monthly statement, a monthly gambling statement to say this is how much you've lost? Is is that something that's around, or is that is it hard to you know get? I remember. I think I remember your contact now, <laughs> um, uh, which which might sound amazing, but we don't get too many where where um, uh, um, you know people inquiring about their father, or for that matter, mums inquiring about their son, or dads inquiring about their daughter, but we do. Um, the business of collecting evidence is is something that should be much, much more simpler than what it is, okay? Now, fortunately, 
because of us doing everything for free, um, we do get some favours from lawyers at times. Um, you know, they recognise that um, perhaps we deserve a, a freebie now and again. And I, I've spoken at length with 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 lawyers about about your question. Okay, and one of the problems is. Now we're in 2020, is anything pre sort of 2014, A, because of the six-year rule within law, but also most of the online companies did not become regulated in the UK until November 2014. So before that date, there was little emphasis on them to do correct record keeping and, and things. But... From two thousand, from November two thousand fourteen onwards, um, there is absolutely no reason why people under the Data Protection Act and now under GDPR should not be able to access all their data that a gambling company has about them. Okay, now it obviously varies hugely between online and in shop or a land based casinos in shop is worse some of the lamb some of the better lamb based casinos um, only use membership schemes so they may have data linked to that membership number okay of you know what people how many chips people bought how many they cash back in um, how long they spent in the casino um, uh, whereas in shop it's very very difficult because a lot of the transactions until the last few years were cash and also so I'm told by <laughs> some industry insiders that that we have um, basically um, they only have to keep certain records for I think about for four or six weeks was the time you know so that still is really really difficult because we've had cases literally and this is no exaggeration and i'm sure it's true um where people have you know maybe four or five years ago six years ago been going into shops with ten thousand pounds in cash in a bag and putting the cash behind the counter um uh, and that a lot of that may have gone on fixed odds betting terminals but it also may have gone on horses or, or dogs so it's easy to focus online um uh, that is where a volunteer can really help help the most because it's one of the few areas of uk and eu law where the person with a gambling disorder has the upper hand because their legal right is to get that data now, I've been tweeting quite a lot recently about gambling companies not fulfilling subject access requests correctly, and that is an absolute nightmare. And I am at a complete loss as to why the Information Commission's Office and the Gambling Commission have not yet fined any gambling companies for breaching for bre privacy law and it's absolutely vital because you get your evidence to build your case so to build your case for your father as as such if that had been all online post 2014 th that data and that therefore that subject access request is the most vital thing and if justice for punters shuts tomorrow right I'm hoping it's not going to do unless I don't make it back from the pub. Um, uh, uh, 
That is probably one of the best things that we've done, which is to make people aware that they're entitled to their data and to fight to get complete data. I think that's brilliant work there, Brian. Um, that's something I didn't really know about. And I think it's, you know, it's really started to spread that message of the subject at access request. But I think um, what I wanted to quickly summarize is what you just said about how, um, you know, actually there, there really isn't that much data. It wouldn't be if it wasn't for, you know, the inf information uh, protection officer and um, the same with GDPR. So rules and laws that, you know, are outside of gambling are actually the ones making an impact in terms of the subject access request. And I think what I want to really allude to is why isn't the evidence so available to um, the customers, you know, even while they are gambling, if, even if it's normal gambling, why isn't it as simple as seeing how much energy you're using on a monthly basis or which tariffs are better for you? There isn't that comparison given to um, to customers. Is, is, that, is that the case? Is it common practice for gam gamblers to not know? Yeah, I think there's there's two the sort of direct answer to what you're talking about. There are there are a very small number of what I like to call more enlightened UK gambling licensees who do communicate with justice for punters, because hopefully they have recognised that we're not trying to get the gambling industry closed down, because I think it would be much worse for vulnerable people in a black market. Okay, what we're trying to do is say, can you survive and play fairly? Okay, because data is not just about the person who loses. It is about how do you manage to ban somebody so quickly who wins when you fail to pick up someone who is losing thousands and claim that you can't identify that there may be a problem there. And, and it all comes down to transparency. The industry has been allowed to get away with being not transparent, okay? And that is still the case today. I do some, I'm working on, on various projects at present, but, you know, we started from terms and conditions and we're still on terms and conditions, but that, of course, now involves privacy policies. And there's a decent argument that no gambling company in licensed in the UK as either a legal set of terms and conditions or a legal privacy policy. Okay. And that's not me saying that. That is lawyers saying that. Okay. And while the DCMS, because don't forget it's the Treasury, then the DCMS who employs the Gambling Commission. It's the Gambling Commission that get the stick. But sometimes that is really, really unfair because they they obviously have 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 boundaries to work to. And I cannot push enough about transparency. And actually, some of the more enlightened operators, I can tell you, are very pro of that. They would like to see um, a customer truly knowing what service they're buying, because that's what you're doing. You know, if you believe the propaganda you are buying entertainment, okay? Now, for you to buy entertainment, you don't go to a Rolling Stones concert and you get there and it's, um, I don't know, Oasis that are on, okay? You'd go absolutely bananas, right? Because I might be, be an Oasis fan, but I've bought Rolling Stones tickets, so I expect 
to see the stones, okay? Sometimes in gambling, as you hinted at, you know, what, what sort of value am I getting here? What is, that is a problem, okay? And then again, you don't expect if you've bought some of that entertainment to then be exploited. You don't expect the Rolling Stones to pester you six times a day to buy more tickets, okay, or to profile you to try and work out could you afford the tickets in Manchester or the tickets in Las Vegas, okay? And that is what's going on all in a non-transparent way, okay? We, we now hold data and the only people that we've shared it with are the Information Commissioner's Office and the Gambling Commission, which gives an insight into how intrusive this data collection is and how it is used. And basically, it is used ruthlessly, okay, to what we have labelled ban or bankrupt, right, which is the data is used to stop people winning using skill, and that is usually applied or quite often applied, which is a better phrase, within 10 bets. And it is also used um, uh, to try and work out whether the person um, possibly could spend a little bit more. But of course, the vital part of that is missed out, which is can the person afford to lose a little bit more? Okay, if I've got a million and I choose to lose a grand a month, where's the problem? Okay, the problem comes in other areas, which is no transparency, what data have we got? And are we using that data to both protect people, not exploit them, and to ensure that everybody gets a fair crack of the whip? Okay? And, it, and, it, and in both areas, as much as the vast majority of people that gamble are happy, they are actually happy because they don't come into either group of potentially winning or being winners or being exploited. Okay, now that is unacceptable. Just because 90%, let's say, are reasonably happy, that does not give you a right to exploit some other people or to sell a service to another group of people that doesn't exist, right? Which it doesn't. If, you, if you're the very small number of people who are very skilled at, at betting, mainly rather than what I would class as gambling, at betting... You don't last. You don't last two weeks. Okay, your account will be closed. Will well, not not closed, restricted. So instead of getting a fifty pound stake, you'll get a fifty p stake. Why can't they do that if they suspect somebody is vulnerable? Well, I think I explained that earlier, which is they have this great fear that that if I stand on this pedestal and say, you know, I'm going to look at affordability for ev for everybody that I have concerns about, am I just going to push them towards a less reputable um, uh, uh, operator? So there is a massive need for the DCMS as the government department, who, who in our experience, and we've met with them, don't understand gambling. They certainly don't understand betting anyway. Um, uh, and, and the GC to look at, and this is not easy, it's to look at an industry-wide set of proper standards, 
Okay, yes, the industry should have an input into that, but it shouldn't be like it is now, which is they decide more or less what their own individual standards per company are going to be. There needs to be an industry-wide standard, and then we can begin to address some of the, some of the issues without the good companies losing out to the bad companies. And this this session is about criminal justice. And part of that is that if you're a director and your company has been proven to be involved in in, in uh, anti-money laundering failures or proceeds of crime failures, your personal license, not the company license, but your personal license should be reviewed immediately. And if there's a second offence, my own opinion is that that license should be taken away and certainly, for a second or further offence, the police should be involved, just like the police are involved for the vulnerable person themselves. And I'd go on to say that I actually, either way around, I wouldn't agree with prison for, you know, certainly for the, for the vulnerable person. What is prison going to achieve? Okay, I know there'll be people shout at me, from various newspapers saying, you know, people should be locked up. What's the deterrent if they don't get if they don't get locked up? Well, if I believed that they were going to get the appropriate rehab, I'd be happy with that. But you know, I've spoken to people that have been in prison and they basically got they got nothing. And that should be no surprise because that applies to most addictions and most forms of crime really. So it's far, far better for them to be forced, in quotes, to do some rehabilitation and hopefully, eventually, be in a position to help others and certainly to have some input into how the gambling industry should be regulated in the future. You know, let's not forget that if we believe it should be legal and it should be regulated which I believe in very, very strongly, we must not forget that it's not like it's not like selling tickets to see the Rolling Stones, right? It is, you know, there is a well-recognised psychological, psychiatric diagnosis of an addiction. And you cannot run away from that. And I would never say either that it should be the industry that should be solving that on its own. It can't do that. You know, why Why should somebody who works in a VIP department suddenly become a psychiatrist, right? It's not, it's not a fair ask. But what you do ask is that they begin to liaise with and hopefully learn from people who are not just being bought, okay? I.e., you know, um, always pushing the personal responsibility angle. Like, no, 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 no. There's a dual responsibility. And that is reflected in, in what we try and do. If somebody asks me what I what should I ask for, right? So I've lost 100,000. What should I ask for? And I always say, certainly not the 100,000, right? Because we need to look at where there is a possibility that the company should have known that there were issues and and various other factors. And often you come up with a figure, 
if there has been exploitation from a particular moment in time, it might work out at 50% or something. And that reflects this joint responsibility. Whereas at present, we just have this, it's all down to the person themselves. And I mean, you've still got idiots. I mean, I, you know, obviously I get into all sorts of Twitter spats, you know, idiots who still think, you know, um, everything is each individual's fault. Well, I'm sorry, when you work for 30 odd years with people who have had brain brain conditions, you know it's not just down to that individual. You know that it's a multifactorial thing. And and that bias is reflected right through the to the criminal justice system, which in some ways is the ultimate um, of, of saying it's your fault. Nah, I'm sorry. The police should be looking at what, as well as the individual role, what was the role of the company that has benefited from what is what is criminal money, okay? And what have they done about that? Now, everybody gets conned. I get conned as a volunteer for Justice for Punches, I'm sure, every month. We will take cases that we shouldn't have taken. So I get conned, okay? But you do the best you can with the resources that you've got to try and stop that happening. These huge corporations have massive resources, okay? They can suddenly find 100 million instead of 10 million. They can suddenly find 10 million instead of 1 million. They've got huge resources. So the question for the, for the criminal justice system is, are they using those resources to the best of their ability to comply with anti-money laundering law and the Proceeds of Crime Act. And if they're not, why is that not seen as a crime? I don't get that, okay? I just don't get it. And, and you know, I think if we have this conversation 50 years from now, we will be talking completely differently because gambling, gambling disorder especially, but also in some ways the way the gambling industry works, it's still a new industry in in the terms of many other industries, legal-wise, legal that is. Um, uh, and you're also looking at attitudes towards an addiction that would suit Victorians, <laughs> okay? You know, this, and, and, and you just see this all the time. Uh, anyway, okay, long answer. <laughs> No, thanks for that, Brian. I just wanted to jump in there. Um, I think you touched on a really valid point about joint responsibility. And I think my husband um, told me in April that he, he'd had three years of compulsive gambling. I knew nothing about it. Um, probably a similar story to, to a lot of um, compulsive gamblers. What advice would you give to people that are quite new in their recovery who are understanding more about addiction and how they've most likely been manipulated into getting into debt and chasing the money what advice would you give to someone new in or what would you sort of recommend they sort of do um to to get the the, the SARS request and what would they do with that SARS request okay well I think first of all my professional background dictates to me to say that everybody's different okay so it, it's a really difficult question that, and and I'm going to try and answer it just from the people that I've I've helped, 
and what they've fed back to me rather than my own personal opinion. Um, because I've learned as, as much from them as, as, as perhaps what, what my helpers help, help them. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things is that people have to be ready. Okay. They have to be ready to, to begin to recognize what has been going on in their life. Okay. And, and I think, because there is a, still these outdated ideas and therefore a shame with a gambling addiction, it's very, very difficult to talk about things. But the biggest successes that we've had have all, all had that as a central theme, talking. All right? So you knowing about your partner's um, situation is a real massive, massive stand start, sorry. Okay? And then you need to decide what you what your objectives are. Now, for some people, that might be to um, seek mental health help. It might be, you know, whether that be counselling, whether that be a mixture of counselling, drugs, or whatever that would be. Might even be some form of family therapy or or, or whatever. But you know, the person's health, not just the person who's been gambling, but everybody's health has to be the first priority, okay? And then, you know, people then suddenly sort of realise, well, actually, um, I've got massive debt now. Um, uh, I really don't know, I, you know, I can't see how, how we're going to get out of that. It's all my own fault, etc. So part of fighting is to try and find out that perhaps it wasn't all your fault, okay? Perhaps you have a right to some sort of financial... No, I don't like to call it compensation because it's not a compensation culture. It is a recognition that maybe I could have less debt than what I presently have, yeah? And so some people are certainly not ready for that because they're not ready to look at their subject access requests. And, you know, I've had people feedback to me saying, you know, that was truly awful. And and I have to go back to them and say, well, I did I did warn you of of how difficult people can find that because they sit and look at this massive Excel file, okay, that, you know, a case that I can think of recently. There's no question that this particular woman was was sat gambling, losing, losing a lot of money while her husband was asleep in bed, okay? So you begin to, you, you obviously, it can make you feel so much worse. So... We always emphasize that you must be ready and you must recognize that this is going to be a difficult a difficult journey. But then other people say it's been really, really useful because I now recognize it wasn't all my own fault. When I when I look at the interaction with the VIP manager or or whatever, I now recognize that I, f- I foolishly thought this person was my friend. Okay. In that you know, it's all those all those notes that you get are usually really chatty. 
you know, not not heard from you for a while. Just want, wanted to check in in on you. Are you good? Yeah. Nah. Okay. The 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 they are just checking to see that you're not gambling somewhere else. Okay, and, and they you know so it begins to round out the picture, and 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 it begins to build a picture that's only really been talked about publicly for the last five five to ten years really mainly the last five where people have thought right i i am confident enough now to come out and say this is me this is what i did but i also want people to know that that i i should have i should have been helped and by that i don't mean it in the sense of the doctor or the or the nurse or the or the social worker. I'm talking about people looking at data. Okay. Every every time somebody loses a substantial amount of money, the gambling company knows that has happened in real time. Okay. So what are they doing with that data? And then you move on. And again, we've certainly had some criticism saying, well, what's the point of doing it? Because the person will only lose it again. And that again is so outdated, and sadly, it's in case law. You know, one of the most famous cases that legal companies who represent the gambling industry churn out is is William Hill versus Calvert, and the judge actually said that one of the reasons that he didn't judge against William Hill was that he thought Calvert would just lose that money again. Well, have they not thought about putting a proper system in place? I was talking to a guy this afternoon who has become a friend after we helped him and his family. And, you know, that was an ideal case. The evidence was gathered. Um, yes, we put pressure on the company through a BBC, a BBC piece, but then they realised that they could have done better. So they decided there was, an, there was a, a, um, a refund agreed. But absolutely crucially, that money wasn't refunded just to the individual that had lost it. It was done in conjunction with his partner. And before they refunded the money, there was an agreement on how the vast, vast majority of it would be spent, i.e. to get rid of the remortgage, to pay all the payday loans. All that had to be done within a certain amount of time. That's the way to do it, okay? But our experience is that the Gambling Commission and others don't even want to talk about it. It's like it, it's like being in a different century. Well, it's like nearly been two centuries back. Yeah, just look at look at what what they do in other in other in other areas of addiction. Look at what what they do in other areas of healthcare, and grow up. Okay and look for proper systems. And then hopefully less people will be going to prison, less less um, uh, gambling companies will be being fined. And, you know, you're never going to solve it totally because you're talking about a psychiatric diagnosis. But we can certainly do much, much better than what we're doing now. We really shouldn't have to be discussing whether... Um, a CEO of a gambling company should be going to prison with, with the person who stole the money. We should be discussing whether we've got the processes in place to make that as rare as possible. And as we all know, because we tracked the media for three months, about 18 months ago, 
for cases of crime related to gambling, there was one virtually every day. Okay, that's what it averaged out, out at. Now, that wasn't always stealing. That might have been attacks on staff, um, attacks on fixed odds betting terminals, which have clearly reduced massively now when you can't lose 300, 300 quid a minute. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so for me, it's just about, um, you know, trying to stop the industry narrative of it's always the person's fault it's never ours and then after that you know try and get some more robust processes in place and get the carrot and the stick balance better why should the vulnerable person be the one that gets the stick it's not right it wouldn't happen it wouldn't happen anywhere else it just wouldn't happen so stop it stop now have a good rethink Stop all the bullshit with all, all the PR, okay? Grow up and do it properly. Thanks for that, Brian. I couldn't have said it any better myself. I think that's the thing, sadly. The most simplest comparable data in relation to harm is from a monetary side of things. And I know that that's quite a sad and damning indictment of where we're at. And this data just isn't made available. Uh, I have to say that within your responses, I think that you've answered pretty much every question that we had for you. Uh, you've certainly provided our listeners with food for thought, especially for someone like myself who's currently going through the SARS process and so we really do appreciate that uh, however sadly we do have to wrap things up however I'd just like to thank you for coming on today Brian delighted to be asked thank you thank you very much for that Brian and for our listeners please join us next week for Women's Week 2.0 which will be being hosted by Tracy which is fantastic news for us boys as we all get the week off but I'm sure it's going to be a fabulous show thank you for listening take care and see you next time you've been listening to the all bets are off podcast to find out more about the creators of the pod then please visit our website www.allbetsaroff.co.uk and don't forget to give us a follow on twitter at all off underscore and share this podcast with others until next time stay safe and remain gamble free thank you for listening